as you know, as some of you know, or as Steve just mentioned, so probably you all know now, um, tomorrow morning I'm going in uh, for this throat surgery to take care of this bumpy thing. And uh, it's just kind of funny how, um, how people respond to things uh, when you tell them that you're going for an operation of some sort. Uh, and how easy it is, and I know because I've done it many times myself, but how easy it is to stick your foot in your mouth and say things that you mean very well but are inappropriate, or at least don't quite land right. Um, last week I was telling a person about my, this raspy throat and I'm going to have it removed and it's no big deal. And, uh, and he says, oh yeah, it's no big deal. But you know what, did you see the movie The Doctor? Yeah, he had a raspy voice at his doctor and he went in and it turned out to be throat cancer. Uh, but that won't happen with you. I it's like, oh yeah, I do, just now, remember that movie, thanks for reminding me. Another, another person had, uh, it's like, it happened to be about two days later, told me that uh, they, they had a friend who had a relative of a friend or something like that, who uh, also had a raspy voice and uh, uh, ended up saying, uh, yeah, he went in, turned to be throat cancer, uh, he died. It's, Really a tough death, too. You, you choke to death. You know? oh, I'm sure yours isn't like that. But, but I mean, he was, it's like, this isn't helping. Another, last week after the service, a person came down. And he was a preacher, and he was visiting here. And he said, oh, I had the same thing. And the doctors told me, do not let anyone with a knife close to your vocal cords. Many people don't even came and talk afterwards. And that kind of scared the kajibers out of me. So I got on the phone the next day, and I called my doctor and got it all straight. And he assured me that he's been doing this for 21 years. He's never had a complication, never had a problem. It's a piece of cake. He can do it in his sleep, which didn't reassure me. But um, he's going to quit drinking that morning just for my operation. <laughs> El bravo. But you know what? Even though he promises you this, and I feel very peaceful about it, I really don't have any kind of worry about it. You never know, do you? You just never know. I mean, what are the stats? One out of every 50 or 60,000 people who goes under anesthesia doesn't come out. Now, when I, you know, that's pretty good odds. Still, when I, I may just be that one in 60,000 or 600,000 or whatever it is. People make promises, but because we don't see the future, don't know the future, can't control the future, sometimes promises about the future don't come to pass. And that hurts. It's often not anyone's fault, but it hurts because we would like so very much for things to be certain and sure, and they really are certain and sure. And people have made promises to us in the past, and they've broken them. And sometimes those broken promises hurt a great deal. It's, it's amazing to me how resilient pain from broken promises can be. It lasts a long time, and it could have been a little thing. I was talking to a uh, uh, a Bethel student several years ago, and I don't even know what we were talking about, but I, I um, just made a comment, a joke I, about her cynicism. I said, boy, you really have trouble trusting people, don't you? And out of the blue, she said, my dad didn't come to my dance recital, and he promised me he'd be there. And her eyes got all watery, and it's like, whoa, what, where'd this come from? She told me about how her, his, her dad, who was this very busy businessman, never could make it to her dance recital, but he promised on this really, really big one when she was 12 years old that he would be there, count on it, and he got tied up at the office or something happened. Maybe it was totally outside of his control, but to a 12-year-old kid, dance recitals are everything, and dad didn't show up. 
and that hurts. And a lot of us still have little scars and pains and maybe big scars and big pains from promises that were broken. I'll be there. You can count on me. I give you my word. I'm looking forward to being there at your baseball game. Can't wait to the basketball practice. I'll be at the gymnastics meet. I'm never going to hurt you. I'll never hurt you. Other people maybe will, but I never will. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I could never reject you, but promises. I'll take you to Disney World. The kid waits and waits and waits, and 25 years old, and you're still waiting. It hurts to have promises broken, and it makes us distrustful of people, and it makes a feeling about the future very unsure. And so we tend to worry about that a lot. The message this morning, which is the fourth in a four-part series on the place of the individual and in God's plan of salvation, as we've been looking through Ephesians 1, verses 1 through 14. It's all about promises. And the main thrust of it is this, that while the future is largely an unknown question mark, and while we maybe are often are hurt by broken promises, and while we sometimes have trouble trusting people, God's promises are sure and certain, and you can count on them. And he never lies, and he'll never let you down. And he makes, at the end of this passage, an incredible guarantee, an incredible promise to all believers that I want to look at this morning. When God makes a promise, he keeps it, and we can trust it. So I want to read here verses 11 through 14. Uh, but before I do that, I'd like to just have a quick prayer. Father, my words are empty, useless, futile, and void without your Spirit in them. And so, Lord, we invite your Holy Spirit to be here infusing my words with my weak voice and infusing our ears with our lack of understanding with your Spirit that, Lord, the Word of God may occur here and that the change may take place in our life, Lord. There are many, Lord, here who tend to sometimes struggle with their assurance of their salvation. And I pray, God, that we could go out of here this morning standing on, feeling like we're standing on a rock that will never be moved, knowing that we know that we know that we are children of yours destined for eternal life with you. You've got to make that happen, Lord. I release myself of any responsibility to make that happen. And just say, Lord, that, ask, Lord, that you'd use my words as an instrument. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, let's get into the Word. The Word of God is precious. It's sharper than two, any two-edged sword. It's our light. It's a lamp unto our feet. It's our food. It instructs us. It's the bread from heaven. We've got nothing else to talk about except for this. So that's why every Sunday we just dive in. If it's here, it's important. So we just take it apart verse by verse. I'm going to give a little bit of preview teaching as I'm reading a couple of these verses mainly to review some things that we've already talked about. But there's some misunderstandings, at least what I think are misunderstandings, that need to be addressed. Verse 11, chapter 1, verse 11, Paul says this. In Him, that is in Christ, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will. Why does he do this? Well, verse 12. In order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. In the first part of verse 13, and you also were included in Christ 
You were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth and the gospel of salvation, and having believed, you were marked with a seal. Now, I just want to stop there. Having believed, you were marked with a seal. A couple of things there, just in terms of review. Paul says that we're chosen in Christ, and being in Christ, certain things are predestined about us. We spoke about six, seven weeks ago that now there's a lot of sincere godly believers who disagree with this, but as I read the scripture, the conclusion I come to is this, that God doesn't from the foundation of the world predestine certain individuals to be in Christ and certain individuals not to be in Christ. He doesn't just kind of arbitrarily go, eeny, meeny, miny, mo, you're going to heaven, and eeny, meeny, miny, mo, you're going to hell. What's predestined is a class of people. He predestines a plan. He foreknows a plan. He sets it out ahead of time. And the plan, it's an outrageous one. It's an incredible one. No one would have ever guessed this. But his plan is that he is going to make righteous sinners, make them totally compatible with himself, pour on them all of his holiness, all of his righteousness, and forgive all of their sins, and he's going to do it for free. He's going to do that for anyone who simply says, yes, I'll go along with that. I don't feel like rejecting that program. That sounds good. I'll do it. Without qualification, without consideration, without condition upon your religiosity, your background, your, your sociological status, your economic status, what you look like, what your past has been like, without any consideration for anything whatsoever, God simply says, do you want it? If you say yes, you're in on it. Everything that's true about Jesus Christ applies to you. His righteousness becomes your righteousness. His character becomes your character. You're put into, as we said several weeks ago, into the jar, as it were, and now God relates to you by relating to his own son. It's an outrageous plan. And once you're in the jar, a ton of things are predestined about you. But whether you're in the jar or not, whether you're in Christ is not predestined. That's up to your heart. Once you're in, a whole ton of stuff is predestined. The analogy we used several weeks ago, if you were here, you remember it. If not, you'll think I'm weird. But if you go to the picnic, it's predestined that you're going to eat chicknic, ch chicknic. <laughs> chicknic ixay. It's predestined you're going to eat chicken. We've decided that. But whether you go to pic the picnic or not is up to you. It's your choice. So also here. In Christ you were chosen. And now that you're in Christ, you can say we were chosen. But it's those who are in Christ that are chosen. Then he says, God works out all things after the counsel of his own will. What does that mean? Some have taken that to mean, and I just want to say a little word about it. Some have taken that to mean that everything that happens is God's will. God is the one who works out all things in conformity to the purpose of his will. Well, that must mean that everything that happens in life is his purpose and, and is his will. Now, there's some problems with that. We could go off on this a long time, but we're not. But sin, the Bible shows very clearly, is against God's will. And there's a lot of sin in the world. That means there's a lot of things in the world that God does not will, namely sin. It'd be crazy for God to will sin and yet be against sin when it happens. He is against sin, he's opposed to sin, he punishes sin, and that shows us that there's many things in the world, uh, that is, sinful things in the world, sinful beings in the world, sinful people in the world, that stand against God's will. This isn't what God wants. Hell is not, people going to hell is not God's will. The Bible says he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But people are going to go to hell. God doesn't want it. That means that not everything that happens is God's will. 
all the things that happen in our life, the tragedies that happen in our life, we're in a state of warfare, folks. We've got, we're caught in the crossfire of a, of a tremendous warfare. And in war, a lot of junky things happen. And it's not all things that God, God wills. The world is under siege by evil forces. We're in a state of war. Innocent people get hurt. But that's not part of God's will. That's what God is against. That's why God's in battle against it. And it really can backfire on you if you begin to think that everything that happens is God's will. That God's, there's enough junk that goes on in your life for you to think that God's got it in for you. And God's got it in for every person who went to hell because God, from the start, willed that. When the Bible says that God works out everything in, in conformity to the purpose of his will, that doesn't mean that everything that happens is God's will. Look, at if I'm in a, in, a, in a fight with somebody, or I'm in a debate, or I'm, you know, some kind of conflict of some sort, I will try to work it out in conformity to my will. I'm going to try to use my wisdom, my infinite wisdom, and, and my, the fact that I am right. I'm going to try to use those two things to win this argument. I'm going to try to take this situation full of conflict and bring it into conformity to my will to make it go the way I want it to go. And maybe if I'm wise enough, and maybe if in fact I am right, it will turn out that way. The, the debate or the problem or the conflict will come out in conformity to, to my will, the way I wanted it to turn out. I work it out in conformity to my will. But that doesn't mean that I control the person that I actually willed the conflict, that I was putting the words in the mouth of the person who was against me. Rather, given the situation, I worked it out in conformity to my will. So also in the world, God works all things in conformity to his, his will. But he doesn't will all things. A big difference there. What the verse is promising us is this. In whatever happens in our life, you can know that God is going to be at work to bring out, to redeem out, to pull out and to extract out whatever good, whatever redemptive uh, value can be brought out of that situation. He may detest the situation, but he's wise enough, smart enough to bring something redemptive out of it. And Paul shows us what God's will is in the next verse, verse 12. He says, God works all things after the, uh, uh, in conformity to his purpose and will. Verse 12. In order that we who first hoped in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. God's ultimate goal, his ultimate purpose in every situation is to bring out of the muck, out of the mire, out of the mess of all the things that he does not will, to bring out of that people who trust in him and thereby have all the things that apply to Christ applied to them and thereby show forth his glory. Out of the muck, out of the mire, he wants to bring out people that are cleansed of all the muck and cleansed of all the mire and show forth God's grace. And he's just smart enough. He's not just smart enough. He's way smarter than enough to do it. His wisdom, it's not a matter of his control. It's a matter of his wisdom. God is smart enough in any situation that any believer is in to, if that believer will submit to it, to bring out Value, redemptive value to sh for God to show himself off in their life. And that's the assurance of the passage. When I look back on my past, I see a lot of screw-ups. I see a lot of sin. I see a lot of stuff that God does not will. Hallelujah. What's going on there? Thank you very much. All right. God did not will that. Um, but there's a lot of things in my past that God did not will. But what's amazing is that God, I, looking back on it, I see how God in his wisdom was able to take that, the mess, the grime, and the gripe, the, the gripe or whatever, and, and to 
actually make it as though it were better that I went through it. I can glorify God in ways that I couldn't have had I not gone through what I went through. He didn't will me to go through that. But since I went through it, he says, okay, I can do something with that. That's God's redemptive purpose. In all things, he's working together to bring out trophies of his grace to show off his glory throughout eternity. But not everything that happens to you is God's explicit will. And now we turn to verses 13 and 14. And you also, Paul says, hey, Ephesians, you know what? You also are included in this. You also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, the, having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. See, there's your part. You have to believe. You accept it, you're in. And when you believed, you were marked with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing, 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 guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. I haven't told you this before, but all the verses that we've been studying this whole summer, they are all one sentence in, in the original Greek. Paul starts in verse 3, and going through verse 14, he doesn't put a pause in, doesn't put a period, doesn't put a comma. He bulldozes his way forward. He hasn't come up for air all summer. It's like he got on a roll. And it's really, he does this in a lot of his letters. This is the longest sentence in the entire Bible. It's like Paul got talking. He starts by saying, you know, we're blessed with every spiritual blessing. As we're in Christ Jesus and we're adopted children and you know what we're also are made holy and blameless in his sight and, and, he, and he, get, he gets on a snowball this roll and it crescendos and crescendos and it's like he he, he he writes like I preach sometimes I don't come up for air that's why sometimes I gotta go because <gasps> you get out of thought and you can't get off of it and if you take one break you might lose the whole thing well, that's what Paul's doing here in this verse. He's going, he, it's getting, it, the thing is crescendoing. He can't stop himself. He's going, and another thing, and another thing, and another thing, and another thing. And now he climaxes the whole sentence. We've spent two and a half months on one sentence. He climaxes it all with these words. You know what? You also are included. Having believed, you were marked with a seal, which is the Holy Spirit who is a deposit. Now, why would he climax this whole thing in this way? Follow me on this. Every year, I talk to believers who are not sure of their salvation. I talk to believers, some, in fact, every year, almost every year, I talk to people who wonder whether they've committed the unforgivable sin, and they're believers. Or people who think that they've just used up all the grace they could ever get, used up all the blood of Christ they could ever have, used up all the forgiveness that God would ever have for them. They've gone too far. They've done enough. They, they're, they're, their life is screwed up enough. Their past is too jaded. They're not saved. Or maybe they feel that they might be saved, but they're not sure they're saved, and they worry about the future. Well, I don't know if I can hang on to that great day in the sky. I might not make it. I hope I'm saved. You ever do that? You talk to people. Are you saved? I hope so. You know, what, what is this, the lottery? You're gonna, hey, yeah, no. no. But you talk to people like that. Because here's the thing. Given this fallen world in which we live, it is very possible, even likely. News is good news. You see that as good, but it's kind of too good to apply to you. And if something in us, call it a spiritual inferiority complex. And I used to wrestle with this a lot. 
It's like, I'm just a little out of sync. It, I just don't quite fit with all the other. They got something I don't have, and so it applies to them, but it's too good to apply to me. With my luck, I'm just going to just miss it. Does it apply to me? My early Christianity was nothing but this. First two years of my Christianity in, in this church that I was saved in, it was eternal insecurity. Anything could, their, their theology was that any wrong move, any kind of doubt, any kind of sin, any kind of failing, bam, the whole thing's called off, it's all revoked, and you gotta get it resaved. So I'm Mr. Christian Yo-Yo getting saved and unsaved on a weekly, if not daily basis, because I was struggling with a lot of kind of sexual sin and stuff. And this Christian stuff wasn't easy for me. God's up there, I love you, I hate you, I love you, I hate you. And that gets old kind of fast. But it's like all of the glory, talking about God's grace and God's splendor and the redemption of the cross and the power of God and the might of God and the love of God, it's all so great and wonderful. But the whole thing comes down to a very, very insecure, whimsical kind of thing, namely me. So what good does all that do if whether I'm in at it or not hangs upon my little flimsy moment-by-moment -moment emotions or my will? It really makes you feel really insecure. And for that reason, Paul says this. This is, the Ephesians could have wondered this. He's climaxing, he's building this thought, he's building this whole kind of theology. He's getting to the top, but no doubt some Ephesians could be wondering, oh yeah, this is great, but is he talking about me? Or maybe he was talking about me yesterday, but then last night happened, so he's probably not talking about me today. So he says, you know what, Ephesians? You also were included. You were included when you believed. Because when you believed, you were sealed with a mark. The Holy Spirit, who is a deposit, a down payment, guaranteeing your inheritance. It applies to you. You got to know this. A seal in the first century. Here's what a seal was. In important documents, important people like government officials, they're the only ones who could do this. They would uh, roll up you know, their, their thing in a scroll like this. And then, to make sure it didn't get tampered with or altered in any way, they would, they would pour hot wax along the line of the thing, and then they'd put a, a, a bigger splot of hot wax in the middle. They'd have a ring which only the governor could wear, or only the, uh, the king could wear, or whatever official it was. And that king would impress on the document his ring, engraving into that hot wax his, his signature or whatever the emblem was that showed that this thing belonged to the king, this thing was, was owned by the king, it was given in the authority of the king, it was spoken with the authority of the king, and therefore it cannot be altered. It cannot be tampered with. If anybody were to open this thing, they'd break the seal. And if you broke the seal, it was immediate death. It showed the king's authority. This is something that you just do not screw around with. It could not be broken. That's why they put a seal over the tomb of Jesus. Some kind of document there with the, the melted wax and the signature of Pilate on it because they're afraid that Christians would, would steal the body. And this, 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 this seal served as giving notice to the entire kingdom that if anyone alters or, or, or reverses or abrogates in any way anything in this document, any decision made by the king, you're a dead man. Now God didn't care, so God broke the seal. Go ahead, Pilate, make my day. <laughs> but for ordinary human beings, it's something you didn't deal with. Paul here has been talking about some of the most glorious stuff of the whole Christian life. We've been talking about it all summer. 
In verse 4, we've been chosen in Christ. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. We have been placed in Christ Jesus, we saw. In verse 5, we've been adopted as children. We've been made sons of God. In verse 6, we've been loved with the same love that the Father has for the Son. We are loved in the Beloved. The same kind of passion, the same kind of fiery, undying, eternal love that applies to Jesus Christ applies to us. Why? Because we're in Jesus Christ. We saw in verse 7 that what this entailed was that we are redeemed, bought out of the clutches of the enemy. And that we are forgiven. Our sins are wiped clean. As far as the east is from the west, our sins are cast from us. They're buried in the sea of God's forgetfulness. And in their place, this is God's wonderful trade, he gives us instead his holiness. He gives us his righteousness. All the glory and untainted splendor that applies to Jesus Christ by nature is given to us by grace because God puts us in Jesus Christ. And then in verses 8 and 9, we saw last, last week, he lavishes on us, bathes us with, pours on us all wisdom and understanding though, so that we, though we may not have very high IQs, we understand the mystery of God's will, what he's doing in the world and what he's doing in our life. And all of this is pointing forward to a climactic conclusion because it all is but a down payment, a foretaste, a prelude, a preview of the inheritance that God has for all the believers who simply say, I'll go along with that to his program. But does it apply to you? Does it apply to you? Paul says one final thing you got to know. You believe, it applies to you. And if it applies to you, it's, all, it's always going to apply to you because God has sealed you when you believed, he sealed you with that signature ring of his. That, 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 it's as though he put, he put you in Christ, put a jar on top of it, and put holy wax around the whole thing, and then gave his irrevocable signature to the whole thing. And that was your down payment, which guarantees to you, Ephesians and Woodland Hills attenders, that if you believe, it applies to you. It means that the authority of your salvation, the assurance of your salvation is rooted in God Almighty. It's rooted in His character. It's rooted in His authority. It means that the transaction, Paul's whole thrust here is to say, this transaction is a done deal. Greg Boyd has a heart that says, I'll go along with that. I take Greg Boyd, I put him in Jesus Christ, everything I predestined for the church now applies to Greg Boyd, and it's a done deal. Case closed. Here's my stamp. I don't want to talk about it no more. It means it's non-negotiable, it's unalterable, it's incontrovertible, it's undeniable, you can't annihilate it. And give me a thesaurus, and I'll think of 17 other words to say as well. You can't tamper with this. And he serves notice to all the beings in the angelic realm and all the beings in the demonic realm and all the beings on earth that this is my kid, this is my child, holy blameless, and he's got an inheritance, and no one's going to tamper with that. No one's going to reverse that. No one's going to alter it. I got my ring on the thing, and no one dare touch it. This is why Paul says in Romans chapter 11, verse 29, that the calling of God is irrevocable. It's irrevocable. He's talking about Israel there, and he asks the question, has Israel been rejected by God? It kind of looks like it right now. You know, they're kind of in a bad way. Have they been rejected? No way, he says. May Genito, may it never be. He says, for the calling of God is irrevocable. God doesn't take back what he once gives. It's irrevocable. This is why Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, that we have been born again with an imperishable seed. We've been born again with an imperishable seed. This seed doesn't perish. It maybe is just a seed. 
And it's got to do a lot of growing. It's got to do a lot of cultivating. It's got to kind of permeate the rest of your life. But the seed itself is imperishable. It's not going to perish. This is why Jesus says in one of the most beautiful passages of the Bible, in, in, in John chapter 10, verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. That's how I know they're sheep. They follow me. I'll go along with that. <laughs> Sounds like a good program, God. If you want to be that outrageous, I'll go along with that. My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. And then Jesus says, and I give them eternal life. In the present tense, they got eternal life. And they shall never perish, he says. Why? Because eternal life is eternal, and it wouldn't be very eternal if it, if, if, if it perished. And then he says this in, in verse 29. Read it. He shows, why is it imperishable? Because my dad is bigger than anybody. My father is greater than all, and no one is able to pluck them out of his hand. You know, I used to play this game with, 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 with my kids when I used to be strong and they used to be weak. I, I'd have some uh, uh, gum in my hand, you know, and, and uh, I'd say, okay, if you can get it, you can have it, you know, but am I cruel or what? So they, they'd like pry, you know, this is a game. I, I'd always let them eventually get it, but they couldn't do it on their own because, man, I have got the muscle, and they were weak. No one's bigger than me, not in this family anyways. No one can pluck it out of my hand. I am the daddy. <laughs> well, what you got to know, believer, here this morning is that you're unpluckable. You're unpluckable. It's like a bunch of chickens. <laughs> I didn't say you're unpeckable, you're unpluckable. Is it because you're so good? Because you're so moral, because you're so upright, because you're so clean, because you're so consistent, because your life's so together and, and everything is just wonderful and you're so moral and you're so faithful and consistent and you pay tithes and you go to church all the time and you just, is that why, you know, do you seal yourself? I've sealed my faith by my behavior. That's not what the verse says. The reason you're implacable, the reason why the seed inside of you is imperishable, the reason why you've been sealed has got nothing to do with you except for the fact that you said, I'll go along with that. It's got everything to do with God. So your salvation isn't rooted on, and this is what's so important to hear, hear it clear. This isn't rooted on and based on some kind of emotion that you had one day. It's infinitely more secure than the fickleness of your day-to-day -day emotions which come and go depending on the weather and come and go depending on some chemical reaction in your brain. Don't you hate that? You know, no control out of it. You just get in a bad mood. There's some chemical that went off in your brain. That'd be pretty bad if your salvation was based on that. I used to think it was. I feel saved today, I must be saved. I don't feel very saved today, I must not be saved. Here you got the whole edifice of God's character and we're basing our salvation on how we feel. Your salvation is, is, is infinitely more secure than, than the vicissitudes of your feelings, the vicissitudes of your emotion, the ups and downs of your little opinions that you have, the ups and downs of your, your psychological certainty. Some days I'm really sure of it, other days I'm not so sure of it. Was God just saying, oh, he's saved, not saved, saved, not saved, saved, not saved, 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 saved. <laughs> if it was based, if God's salvation, if, if, if this whole thing was based on the little tiny whimsical us, that's what God would be doing up there. But the Bible tells us that the reason why the word is imperishable, 1 Peter 1.23, is because, he says, the grass withers and fades, but the word of God endures forever. The word of God endures forever. There's something that you can count on in life. There's something that doesn't change in life. And it's the word of God. And so when God says, Greg Boyd, 
There's a heart that says yes, you're in. Greg Boyd, here's the holiness. Greg Boyd, here's the righteousness. Greg Boyd, you're my kid. Greg Boyd, you've got the inheritance. It endures forever. When God speaks the word of holiness into my life, it endures forever. You know, what we got to see is that salvation is a consequence of God's grace and also a consequence of God's power. God's grace is what saves us. It's an outrageous grace. It's a ridiculous grace. But he's God. He goes along with it. We just say, I'll take it. God's grace saves us, but God's power is what keeps us saved. God's grace gets us redeemed. God's power keeps us redeemed. God's grace is what puts inside of us. God's outrageous grace puts in us faith in him, but it's God's almighty omnipotent power that keeps us growing in the faith. And God's grace is what declares us to be holy, but it's God's omnipotent power, the down payment of the Holy Spirit inside of us that keeps us growing in that kind of holiness. And it's God's grace that makes us a spotless bride of Christ, but it's God's grace that keeps us his bride and keeps us growing in that reality. God's grace gets us in, but it's God's strong power, the omnipotent hand that keeps us in. And once he puts that wax on it, once he puts that seal on it, the transaction is done, the thing is complete. Romans 8 puts it like this. Romans 8, verses 29 and 30. Great passage of scripture. Paul says here, all the ones that he foreloved, he, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And all those he predestined, he called. And all those he called, he justified. And all those he justified, he glorified. The point of this whole thing is there, is this. If you've got a heart that says, I'll go along with that, and you are in Jesus Christ because of that, the one whom God has foreloved and predestined, if that applies to you, then this is also true. Once you're in, it is predestined that you are going to someday look like Jesus Christ. And if that's true about you, then God calls you. And if that's true about you, then God justifies you. He declares you righteous. And if that's true about you, then God glorifies you. It is so certain to Paul. It is so solid for Paul. It's so assured for Paul that he speaks about the glorification in the past tense as though we had been glorified. But the point is this. That's an unbroken circle there. If you're there at the beginning, you're there at the end. If you're called of God, you're going to be justified. And if you're justified, you're going to be glorified. In other words, God doesn't lose any of his kids between the crack. There aren't some that fall by the wayside. So that's why Jude 24 tells us. i got a stream of verses coming here. That's why Jude 24 says, Praise be to him who is able to keep us from falling. He's able to keep us from falling. The one who keeps us, the one who preserves us is the same one who saves us in the first place. And ultimately it's to his glory that we stay in the faith, that we stay solid. The Bible says that he cannot lie. He cannot lie. Titus 1-2, God cannot lie. Hebrews 10-12 tells us that he who has promised to us is faithful. James 1.17 says that there's no semblance or no shadow of turning in God. And the point of that whole thing here is this. When God says, you know what, I guarantee it, here's the down payment, and here's the seal. You know what, I guarantee it, here's the down payment, and here's the seal. He's making to us a promise. And God would literally, how secure is their salvation? Well, let's think about it for a second here. God would have to make himself a liar and deny his own word and deny his own character, deny his own deity, become the devil himself to reverse it. 
because it's rooted in the very character of God. The bottom line of the whole thing is this. If you see this, if you grab this, if you see, see what it's based on, a couple things happen that are very important. And that is the question i got to deal with. A couple things first. Number one, you can, you can face the future with a sense of assurance and confidence. Because the future is largely a question mark, but one thing you know for sure. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, folks. These may be the last words you'll ever hear. Let's get melodramatic. I, I may never see you again. Hey, I may die tonight and I won't need the operation. Praise the Lord. You know, who knows? I mean, life's weird. Bizarre things happen all the time. The unexpected occurs. Who, what's going to happen to your finances? Nobody knows. You may be down on poverty skid row in, in a week. You don't know this kind of stuff. What about your health? Well, people find out they have cancer every day. You know, did you ever see the movie The Doctor? They thought it was a nodule there, too. Life's bizarre. There's very little you can hang on to. It's, it's really an open book. That's, that, you know, and on the one hand, that makes life kind of interesting. It makes it kind of risky, and, and that's kind of nice in a way. It'd be boring if it was all just one big blueprint. But on the other hand, it can make you worry a lot. It's ambiguous. It's up in the air. But if I know one thing is true, if I, if I, if I can be sure about this one thing, I can deal with it. I can deal with the rest of this stuff. And the one thing is that I know that I'm a child of God, cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, forgiven, a son of God, and therefore I have an inheritance, and I'm not going to lose it. I'm not going to lose it. Concerning this one, very important, when all is said and done, it's the only important fact in my life. There's no more ifs, there's no more ands, there's no more buts. I'm going to heaven, and when I do, I'm going to be rich. I hasn't seen the year, hasn't heard the things that God has in store for those who love him. And somehow that changes the whole perspective of things, doesn't it? If I knew, if I knew I was going to win the lottery, a 60, what, what is, you, of course, none of you would know what's in the lottery, but it's probably a couple million dollars. If I knew I was going to win $60 million on Friday, you know what? I wouldn't have any trouble sleeping on the streets Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. I could be on skid row. wouldn't matter a bit. I'd go hungry. You know, I'd suffer because I, I know Friday's coming. And so also, if you get a grasp on what your inheritance is because you're a believer, what's already socked away, irrevo irrever irreversible, irrevocable, indisputable, and incontestable, somehow this whole life becomes a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. I can deal with all the crust that this world sends my way, all the gripe, the grime, because I know that God has the final word, and I know what God's final word about me is. It also has this implication, believer, and grab this, okay? Chew on this. There's no place in the Christian walk for a person who says yes to God's plan to be sitting around saying, I hope I go to heaven. You deserve, it's part of your inheritance, the knowledge that you are going to heaven and that that's rooted in God's character. So many believers act as though they were still on probation. Like there's a, still a question mark here. The guillotine could fall at any time. The whole thing could be called off. And so they treat God like a probation officer. And the trouble is, is that it's very hard to grow passionately in love with a probation officer. It's very hard to live for a probation officer. If I was on probation, I would kind of, I'd instinctively want to find ways of breaking probation and, and not have him find out, just to spite him. Who, who loves a probation officer? But the Bible says that God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, whereby we cry, Abba, Father, Galatians chapter 4. Abba is the Arabic word for daddy. We don't call God probation officer, sir. 
Don't drop the guillotine on my head today, please. The spirit inside of us that's a down payment, the guarantee, and the seal of our salvation says, you're my dad. You got your arms around me. You love me with an everlasting love. A love that doesn't waver. A love that will not change. And the growth in the Christian life comes not from being on probation, but being in celebration over the reality of God's undying, saving love in your life. Get off of probation and start getting in celebration, thanking God for the inheritance that Paul says you've already received. There's no room for the question mark in the Christian's life. Now, here's the question you've all been having. You've been asking it, wondering if I'm going to get to it or whether I'm going to pretend like it doesn't exist. It does exist, and so I ask it. But i got to do it fast here, don't I? Here's the question. What about people who walk away from the Lord? They were once saved. They go out into the world. They send their brains off and don't even care. What, do you, what about that? Are they eternally secure? What about Don Barker, who I debated at the University of Minnesota the other day, a couple weeks, months ago, I guess? He was an evangelist for 17 years. Now he's spending his whole life fighting Christianity. Is he saved? Is he eternally secure? But a guy I met one time, tried to witness to him. He was living with two gals and stoned out of his brain, really had a bad drug problem, and, and, and that was the least of his problems. He was just ungodly from the word go. I witnessed to him, and he goes, oh, I'm a fellow believer. And I go, oh, really? What church do you attend? And uh, he said, well, you know, when I was, I don't attend church, of course, but when I was four, I gave my heart to the Lord, and and I know that he's not Lord of my life, but he is Savior, because when I was four, I gave my heart to him. And so I know I'm going to heaven, even though I'm going to probably live like this the rest of my life, because I like it. Now, if that doesn't go against what Scripture says about believers, nothing does. You hear that, and you go, what? Something's a little skewed there. What happens to people like that? And why does the Bible have warnings about not going back on your faith? Not going back into the world. First Peter says that it's like a dog returning to its vomit. Let me say two things and I close. Number one, on the one hand, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, he says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit with whom you are sealed until the day of redemption. It is possible for believers to grieve the Holy Spirit, but that doesn't rip the seal open because, because the seal is stronger than us. But we can grieve the Holy Spirit. I believe we grieve the Holy Spirit every day. Part of our growth in the Christian life should be learning how not to grieve the Holy Spirit. But with our apathy and with our sin and with our carnality and whatever, we grieve the Holy Spirit. And it's possible for believers to do like the nation of Israel is now doing, and that is to stumble. They haven't been rejected, but you stumble, you fall into sin, you go through a real bad patch, and it can happen for a long time. All the while you're grieving the Holy Spirit. But you know what? When you grieve the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will grieve you back. He will make you, if, you're, if, if you really have a heart that says yes to God, and you've been in on it, He will make you so miserable because He loves you so much. And He'll bring you as low as He's got to bring you. And it's incredible how deep we can go in order to get you back. But if you really have been and are in Christ, there's no way you're going to outlive God. There's no, way you can, there's no way you can beat him at this. He's going to bring you back. I tried it, folks, nine months. I, for intellectual reasons, gave up on Christianity, thought the whole thing was dumb. I tried to go back into my sin, back into my old lifestyle. One part of me said, oh, good, I get to have fun. And you know what? God made me the most miserable man on the planet for nine months. And praise God, hallelujah, because he loves you. He made me really mad, too, but he won. 
God will reel them back in. God will reel them back in. But the second point is this. There's another group of people whom John talks about, 1 John 2.19, where John says of this group of people, they went out from among us because they never were a part of us. And you see, it is possible for a person to look like they're saying yes to God's program, but not be saying yes to God's program at all. You go to church because, and you go along with the Christian thing because it's the proper thing to do. Your heart doesn't say yes to Jesus. Your heart says yes to social propriety, or it says yes to nice programs, or it says yes to the nice music that you play, or it gets a little bit of guilt off you, or you want your kids to grow up with some kind of moral values, but there's no Jesus in your heart. These are people who don't, aren't comfortable talking about Jesus. They'll talk about church and talk about things here and there, but, but Jesus isn't on their lips. There's no heart there. There's no passion there. They're surrounded by religious idols. They get life, not from Jesus, but from church and committees and whatnot, and they cause a lot of problems in churches. Paul calls them Ishmael's in Galatians chapter 4. If those idols dry up, they're out of here. Because that's the only reason they were here in the first place. Someone insults them, says this happens, this idol falls apart, or they screw up, they're gone. But they're gone not as children of God who the Holy Spirit will be convicting about their sin. They're gone because they never really were a part of it anyways. And this was just sort of a prelim of the wheat being separated from the tares. The whole issue of eternal security does not need to be an issue because almost all parties agree on, on these two things. Number one, if you're a believer, you have a heart that says yes to God. You may be grieving God in a lot of ways, but God will grieve you back in order to get you to clean up your act. You cannot rest in peace in sin. You may still be choosing to be in sin, but God's not going to let you get a lot of pleasure out of it. He's going to keep on pulling you back. You who are, have a heart that's saying yes to God can have total assurance that like Jeremiah, Jeremiah 33, God, 333, uh, 33, 3, God loves you with an everlasting love. And you need to have that. You need that assurance, that confidence that the inheritance is yours and God's going to keep you from falling. <laughs> 